Japanese politician Seiko Hashimoto has been appointed Tokyo 2020 president. She replaces the octogenarian Yoshiro Mori, who was forced to step down last week amid a sexism scandal. But Hashimoto isn't without her own colourful past, as we'll discuss today. In Hong Kong, a shake-up of the public broadcaster Radio Television Hong Kong. Is afoot. Known for its independent reporting, the station's sanctioning by the Chinese government has stoked fears of a further clampdown on free speech in the city. And finally, we'll look at Senator Ted Cruz's ill-advised trip to Cancun as his home state of Texas struggles with extreme weather and rolling power outages. Not a good move, Ted. Monocle's panel mull over these stories today on the late edition here on Monocle 24. Hello, and a very warm welcome to the late edition here on Monocle 24. It's Friday, the 19th of February, and I'm Josh Fennett here at Midori House. With me today to dole out some nuance on today's news headlines are Monocle 24's head of radio, Tom Edwards, down the blower, and recent birthday boy and Monocle editor at large, Ed Stocker, who's speaking to us from Milan in Italy. Ed,、uh, how have this week's festivities treated you? We don't need to tell our listeners exactly why it was such a big round birthday,、uh, but you enjoyed a few things. I gather some time with your family, a bit of celebration, and also a midweek serenade and surprise Zoom call from the editorial team. Did you have any inklings? Was it truly a surprise? Well, first of all, you know, twenty-one is a big, a big day, and.、Um... <laughs> And it's not that round, so I don't know why you said that. But anyway,、um, uh, I was very surprised to be confronted with a lot of faces on a weekly、uh, video chat that we have, checking in with、uh, editors, te- the team back in London. I mean, from what I gather, somehow my girlfriend was involved in speaking with our, our managing editor in London. I, I don't know what's been going on, but I was definitely surprised. I wouldn't wish it on、uh, my worst enemy, having to talk to、uh, Tom Reynolds. So I'm, I'm very sorry for that、um, on her behalf. And、um, Tom Edwards, we're speaking to you from your Bond villain-style lair in the centre of a volcano, <laughs> I believe,、um, on the outskirts, the outer burbs of London. How do we find you today? Yes, surrounded by、uh, lava, simmering away nicely, Josh. And re- I imagine ready kind of sh- sharks in a tank as well, swimming past threateningly.、Uh, yeah, you've seen, you've seen in, you've seen how I roll up here in Walthamstow. That's 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 how we do. An abrupt end there. I hope he hasn't fallen into the shark tank.、Uh, but we should we should probably move on.、Um, we start this evening's show in Japan. As some predicted, the politician Seiko Hashimoto has been named as the new head of the Tokyo Olympics, which are still due at the time of broadcast anyway to take place this summer. Despite it should be said, some grumbles from the home crowd. Unusually, Hashimoto is a former Olympian herself, excelling at both speed skating and track cycling. But staging an already delayed summer games in unwilling. And broadly unvaccinated country could cause a slip-up.、Uh, let's take a listen to our Asia editor and Tokyo bureau chief Fiona Wilson speaking on today's edition of the Globalist. I think she's got an uphill battle on her hands. You know, aside from Mori's disastrous comments, you know, I think there's just a general scepticism about having the Olympics this year mid-pandemic.、Uh, vaccinations really, really barely started here, so. That is going to be a big problem, and she did address that yesterday when she finally said she'd taken the role. She said she understood great public concern. She's going to hold a safe and secure games, you know, and she said, "I'm here to return what I owe as an athlete." She made all the right noises, but I honestly think it's going to be a very, very difficult、uh, job for her. And you know, lots of people here have been describing it as, as a glass cliff appointment. You know that 
a woman has been elevated at this moment really for a project that's not necessarily doomed to failure, but it's going to be very, very difficult. And they feel that, you know, in some ways, nobody else wanted the, the role and, and, and she herself was very reluctant to take it. Sage words there from Fiona Wilson in Tokyo speaking on Monocle 24 a little earlier today. Um, Tom, some may have been uh, a little reluctant to take this job, as Fiona mentioned. Uh, there are some uh, um, hurdles to clear, shall we say. Uh, but surely it's a good thing, at least, that this job has gone to a woman after the sexism allegations, which really ripped through Japan and caused a lot of condemnation from without. Um, it's going to be a tough job, but is it good, I suppose I'm asking, that a woman has taken it and that people are able to move forward and discuss the games rather than the um, aged politicians making gaffes around them? Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely to be to be welcomed that she's taken the job, uh, that she's a woman, and of course that she's a, a storied Olympian. I think we slightly kind of undersold her in the introductory. You know, she excelled at the Winter Olympics and the Summer Olympics. Not many do that. I think she's made more Olympic appearances than any other Japanese athlete, bar one, I think only. And I think the point is... You know, it's interesting. We know about the sort of patriarchal problems of of, of Japanese corporate and political life. And, you know, it's been quite striking to me that even since she's taken the job, she herself's been vilified. People have said, you know, oh, she she used to get into these clinches with uh, young male skaters when they didn't want to. She She's guilty of sexual, sexual har- harassment. And there's some claim and counterclaim around that. But what's interesting about it is that, you know, I, it's difficult to, to, to call this out, but, you know, her purported victims have certainly never said they felt harassed. And she is a pro athlete. You know what these people are like. They're always slapping and grappling and hugging and smooching each other. It's 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 par for the course. So I think she just behaved in the way that all pro athletes would recognise. Actually, if anyone's seen speed skaters in particular, those guys and gals really know how to party. So I think that's been a bit unfair. And maybe that also betrays a little bit of latent, you know, misogyny as well from certainly the Japanese, the Japanese media. I know we keep coming back to this, particularly seemingly on the on Friday's late edition. But when the when the general level of anticipation is so low, when the the prevailing view seems to be, look, the public don't want it, nobody wants it. This games is a poison chalice. Surely the only way it can go from there is up. And I, I think there's a potential here for for you know Seiko Hashimoto or and others to actually deliver something that surprises on the upside. Why not? We've had very little to smile about at all, haven't we, for such a long period? I I, I honestly think these games. Well, two things. I want them to happen. And I think they might actually be quite a nice diversion. So we should all stop being so negative. A strange glimpse there into Tom's uh, amorous sounding university speed skating (laughs) days. Um, Unbelievable. He's been there's a man that's been in a clinch before. Let's move on swiftly to our second story of the day. But we'll stick in Asia. Why not? Hong Kong has been rocked by protests and pro-democracy campaigners have called for greater freedoms of speech. But instead of that, a trusted public broadcaster is now set to receive a shake up. A recent government report has called for RTHK, a government-funded but editorially independent outlet, to be more closely supervised. The Chinese state accuses it, without any obvious grasp of irony, as lacking objectivity. Let's take a listen now to Isabel Hilton, the London-based CEO of China Dialogue. She was speaking on the briefing earlier today. There are always ways that, that government and can, can bring pressure and, and the BBC classically gets accused of bias by both sides, you know, whichever government is in power and governments do try to put pressure. But Hong Kong, of course, is is more vulnerable and what has changed, as we know, in recent years is is the Hong Kong government's attitude to press freedom. So 
we can see pressure here on this public broadcaster. We can see pressure on Apple Daily, another independent media outlet. Um, Jimmy Lai, its proprietor, has been arrested. Um, you know, it's this is a fairly standard Communist Party playbook that you have to close down contrary uh, perspectives. And they do have done this within the kind of public discourse by labeling uh, the broadcaster as as biased by deluging it with complaints about bias and then by removing the key executives in the organization that protected the journalist against pressure. So, you know, we are seeing the we're seeing a move really to integrate the broadcaster into state propaganda um, to serve Carrie Lam, the chief executive's uh, agenda and to refrain from supporting or indeed airing any contrary opinion. Isabel Hilton of China Dialogue speaking there a little earlier on Monocle 24. Um, Ed, it's obviously um, to us in the media as well, um, always compelling to hear about uh, freedom of speech issues and what's going on in the media. But is this a sign that the pro-democracy campaigners in Hong Kong have failed Um, They are not getting the freedom of speech that they want. Or is it in some sense that they've succeeded in provoking China into further actions to stem their opposition? What do you think the motivation is here by China to uh, to stop this public service broadcaster having its fair say and having its editorial independence? I mean, it's a really tough question to answer that about failure, because obviously they've done amazing work and many of them have been extremely brave. You know, look at... Joshua Wong, who was uh, arrested, I think, for the third time in December of last year using uh, the the new national security law. He's in prison. Just recently, um, a 19-year-old student was arrested, uh, is on bail over a protest from November of last year. So a real clampdown. And, and we saw just uh, at the beginning of this month a bipartisan political group in the US, no easy task, these days recommending some of those people involved in promoting democracy in Hong Kong for the Nobel uh, Peace Prize this year much uh, to the irk of uh, China but I mean when do you, whether you talk about success or failure I mean the truth is that obviously uh, China has been severely clamping down on Hong Kong and they've been successful uh in that regard really you know there were protests during the course of 2019 and 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 last year 2020 over uh this extradition law then obviously the security law has come in which gives uh china pretty wide-reaching powers really over uh potentially uh to control the judiciary but also uh to label what counts as um terrorism and subversion, the fact that there's a wide scope for them to to claim that people are either acting on grounds of terrorism and, and subversion. And uh, this latest move over what is a, a state-funded media outlet that has always had an independent line is broadly in keeping with these moves we've seen over the last few years. The fact is that um, China wants to rein in uh, uh, Hong Kong, and that's precisely what it's doing. 
and listeners can uh, hear our Hong Kong Bureau Chief James Chambers, who is a great authority on such things, and reports across the Monocle 24 schedule. Tom Edwards, if I were to broaden this out a little bit, I'm just wondering what this kind of signals for press freedom. China recently banned uh, some programmes by the BBC World Service, the bits that weren't actually banned anyway, a lot of it was. We've also seen some kind of skirmishes by Facebook in Australia over social media companies being asked to pay to carry news stories. Um, so it's going to be a pretty broad question, by the way. Um, but I wonder, I wonder if these stories um, tell us that companies and governments alike uh, are all thinking a bit more carefully about the role that the media plays in, in civil society. Are we coming to terms with the fact that we need to both fund and support the news, certainly in countries where we think such things are important? I, I'd agree with you, Josh, in as much as it shows that all of these stakeholders are um, preoccupied by the status of media, the power of it and its regulation. But I'm not sure we get a, a great deal more clarity. It's interesting, you know, China did indeed ban those bits of the World Service. But in, in point of fact, virtually no BBC output uncensored was available to anybody within China anyway. Uh, similarly, the, the, the output of uh, RTHK out of Hong Kong. And don't forget, this is a storied institution too. It was founded in the 1920s, you know, and its founding charter guaranteed its editorial independence. So this is quite worrying, um, a, a push from the Hong Kong government, which is after all the institution that's uh, sanctioned that, that, uh, that, that broadcaster. I think the Australian example is a bit different and, you know, it, it's equally complicated. You know, it's, there have been some who've moved to applaud the Aussie government even after they've reconciled uh, with, or, or sorry, the, the Australian media uh, houses have reconciled with Google, but certainly not with Facebook. But, you know, even the fact that Facebook's refused to play ball, people have condemned them for their, uh, you know, moves against freedom of speech and for, for behaving in a sort of fascistic way. But, you know, is it is it that simple? You know, if people no longer get their trusted news, in inverted commas, from Facebook, well, isn't that probably a good thing? Surely then people seek to find news of, of worth and veracity elsewhere. Maybe they go to the source of the news itself. I mean, you, you could spin that as being a, a good thing, whereas Google playing ball, paying these media companies... I don't know about you, Josh, I don't feel a great deal better from the fact that Google is, is paying Rupert Murdoch's News Corp tens of millions of dollars to, to feature News Corp content uh, on Google search. How much of that money actually will, I don't know, go go to fund journalist roles? Are any journalists in, in Oz going to be getting a pay rise from that? I, I find that highly unlikely. So I think all of all, all these stories show is that whether you're in a Western democracy or whether you're in a despotic regime, you know, the, the relationship between government, uh, broadcasters, media, and, and, you know, often these very, very wealthy controllers of media is, is probably as murky and as complex as it's ever been. Yeah, I agree with you. It also kind of reminds me of at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic when the government here in the UK made some noises um, about buoying the, uh, the print advertising industry by taking out... Um, adverts for public health reasons, but they only really took out adverts with News UK, another Rupert Murdoch organisation, and uh, Reach, a company that used to be Trinity Mirror. But again, a very big newspaper player, slightly taking away from the fact that there is an entire independent um, industry that needs supporting as well. But of course, we'll be following uh, that story on Monocle 24. Next up, 
It's Friday, which won't be news to many of you, but it also means that it's time for our weekly saunter around the addled mind of our man in the Big Apple. Yes, sir, it's our bad penny of a former producer and current New York correspondent, Henry Rees Sheridan. Remember him, listeners? And while you may have some understandable fatigue with headlines about today's G7 summit, vaccine nationalism, the U.S.-Iran deal, or the whereabouts of Dubai's Princess Laifa. Fear not, because Henry stays well away from those topics and pretty much anything else notable or newsworthy <laughs> altogether. Here he is. Take it away, Henry. Over the course of the pandemic, I've developed some aches and pains. For treatment, I first turned to Physical Therapy YouTube. This video is about hip pain diagnosis. We are going to go over some basic Michael areas Bob of hip Shrub, pain. Physical therapist. Brad Hynek, physical therapist. You're the most famous physical therapist on the internet. In our opinion, of course, Bob. You got hip pain, Dr. you got to stop these and five pretty Miss Remy. And yeah, she's sleepy too, because we're in bed. And today I'm going to show you five simple stretches and exercises to relieve hip pain. But I lost my way. I'm Jane, I'm one of the women's health physiotherapists at my physio SA for her. I work in Adelaide and Mount Barker clinics and today I'm going to give you a couple exercises that you can do um, to help you with hip and low back stiffness or pain during pregnancy. There's too much advice and a lot of it is contradictory. My dial-up mind doesn't have the bandwidth to process it so I decide to pay someone to alleviate my decision fatigue a real-life physical therapist. The physical therapy office is in Lower Manhattan. It's decked out in the neutral tones and rounded furnishings of a millennial co-working space. The changing rooms, water closets and lockers are nice and clean. And there's a refreshment station featuring plenty of sachets of premium instant hot chocolate. I'm told that I can drink as many hot chocolates as I like. I'm introduced to my therapist, Jennifer. She walks me into the treatment room of the clinic. There's a complement of fancy gym equipment surrounded by massage tables pushed up against the walls. I lie on one of the tables and Jennifer feels the painful parts of my body. It's the first time someone other than my wife has touched me in a year. In response, my brain releases a heady chemical cocktail that makes me feel, at once, an overwhelming sense of relief and an acute sense of threat. To distract myself from these feelings, I look around the room from my prone position. Demographically, it's a truly diverse space. This is rare in New York where groups of people tend to meticulously self-segregate. You do see groups made up of people of different nationalities and colours, but it's superficial diversity. When you look closer, you realise that they are all, for example, the same age, the same class, and working in the same industry. The only really diverse room I've been in since coming to New York was in the Louis J. Lefkowitz State Office Building in Lower Manhattan. It contains the New York City Marriage Bureau, where me and my now wife got married. When you go there to get married, you take a Delhi-style ticket and wait your turn in a big hall, with everyone else waiting to tie the knot. At any given time, the room is filled with couples representing almost every possible combination of human being. 
If the New York City Marriage Bureau reflects the diversity of love, the physical therapist's office reflects the diversity of pain. To my left, a young man recalibrates his fine motor skills using a therapeutic toy. It's a maze of wire attached to a handle. He's twisting the handle to make a kind of abacus bead slide from one end of the wire maze to the other. In the middle of the room, a very old man kicks a football back and forth to a therapist over an extremely short distance. Everywhere I look, people of all shapes and sizes and creeds and colours form a rainbow coalition of corporal suffering. Jennifer shows me an iPad displaying a digital 3D model of the human musculoskeletal system. She explains that some of my muscles literally aren't pulling their weight and that other muscles are having to compensate for them. The solution is to whip my lazy muscles into shape using strengthening exercises. I've just embarked on a set of side-lying hip abductions when a big muscly man walks in. I'll call him a new boy. Before I know what's happening, Jennifer, who so far has been devoted to me, is lavishing her attention on new boy instead. I can half overhear their consultation. It sounds like new boy has a serious and complex injury. I'm overcome with an urge to get Jennifer's attention back. I finished my hip abductions. I finished my hip abductions. I whine. Jennifer, I finished my hip abductions. Jennifer, who is by now massaging new boy's strong back muscles, shoots me a look of barely concealed contempt. Jennifer's abandonment couldn't have come at a more inopportune time. Any other week, I would have been able to rationalise it. Jennifer had a choice between treating a big muscly man with serious injuries or a medium-sized man with fake injuries, and she made the obvious one. But this week, I've been binge-watching Can't Get You Out of My Head, the latest series of films by the British filmmaker Adam Curtis. Curtis makes films about hidden power structures in society. He elucidates these structures with his signature style of hypnotically compelling narration. We are living through strange days. Across Britain, Europe and America, societies have become split and polarised, not just in politics, but across the whole culture. There is anger at the inequality and the ever-growing corruption, and a widespread distrust of the elites. Yet at the same time, there is a paralysis, a sense that no one knows how to escape from this. The films have made me incredibly paranoid, and I am convinced that Jennifer's abandonment of me in the bougie physical therapy office is a sign that a deep rot has taken hold in American society. By spreading its resources too thin and incorporating aspects of the leisure industry, the medical-industrial complex has completely lost its way. This is what I type into the little comments box using Jennifer's iPad when she asks me to fill in a digital feedback form at the end of the session. After I tap submit, I worry for a moment that the furthest my observation is likely to travel is Jennifer's end-of-year review. But then I remember that it's the only form of power that I have to strike back against the corrupt physical therapists. That, and an almost limitless tolerance of, and appetite for, premium instant hot chocolate. Thanks very much, Henry, for that one. Um, 
I don't know what to say <laughs> afterwards, so I'm going to move swiftly on. Um, for our final item in the show, we're going to stay in the US and talk about Ted Cruz. Why not? The Trump-touting GOP senator from the Lone Star State was pictured hopping on a flight to Cancun on holiday this week. Doesn't seem too bad, you seem to be saying. Well, the optics haven't played that well in a state that's experiencing a fearful blizzard of issues caused by a cold snap and compounded by the pinch of a pandemic. Texas's electricity grid can't cope and thousands of people are still without power. Cruz has since returned after what became a needfully brief trip to Mexico and has admitted this attempted escape was indeed a mistake. Given this spectacularly poor decision-making, I thought I'd throw it open to our panel of spectacularly poor decision-makers to ask if you had any um, favourite political blunders. You know, my one comes to mind, it's less a blunder, but it's more just an image scored in my memory, is a kind of Blair on holiday pictures. One one button too many, undone. That was a bit of a political faux pas as far as I can tell. But um, Tom Edwards, are there any other trips you can think of that politicians maybe shouldn't have made? Well, not a politician exactly, but the only one in town, uh, as far as Great Britain is concerned, uh, of of recent note was Boris Johnson's uh, erstwhile number one advisor, Dominic Cummings, who, of course, uh, completely abused and uh, ignored the COVID-19 regulations to take a a, a day trip by car, even though he couldn't see because he was so ill with COVID, uh, to Barnard Castle. And that's now become this sort of punchline to a (laughs) a million jokes in this country. But, you know, Joking aside, Cummings's abuse of that uh, of his of his privileged position and his failure to adhere to the rules and recommendations, you know, pr- pretty. I think you can go so far as to say it directly led to similar abuses by Joe Public, and probably therefore directly to the spread of the disease and to and to more deaths. I think it's not going it's not going too far to say that that act by him, an ill judged day trip. Um, probably cause you know cause cause loss of life which is about as serious as it gets i mean it is still almost funny it's contemptible it's risible um but that that has become the watchword for for an ill-judged political trip to be honest i think that cummings has out cruised ted cruz i don't know what you think ed well i think that's just a, a seamless uh use of pun on the word cruise i just uh, i can't <laughs> how can i beat that to be honest with you um I, i'm gonna stick in the uk for my choice josh and tom I'm going to delve into the archives when, Joshua, you were just uh, just a, a wee nipper, probably, in single figures. Um, August of 1992, I remember being on holiday at the Isle of Wight and running out the door in the morning to go and get the newspaper, the Daily Mirror, in fact, at the request of my parents, who were quite interested in the royal family. Yes, the royal family. We're not talking about politicians it was an ill-fated uh, holiday to Saint-Tropez in France. Sarah Ferguson, Fergie, with her financial advisor, uh, John Bryan from Texas. You may recall those pictures of uh, a certain toe-sucking incident <laughs> that remain in my memory. There we go. That's all I've got to say. Wow, what a place to end the show. But you did bring us rather neatly back to the Lone Star State, so a few ill-advised trips from Texas to elsewhere we're going to leave it there for today sadly because that's all the time we have on today's late edition a huge thank you to tom edwards in london and to ed stocker in milan who's both a guest today a birthday boy this week and today's fine producer so thank you very much ed for all of your hard work thanks also to louis allen who's edited today's program in london the late edition returns on monday but for now i'm josh fennett and i hope i will remain so have a fine friday evening and a winning weekend won't you